Welcome to I Swear on My Mother's Grave. My name is Dana Black, and in 2016, I lost my mom. And now I'm talking to other people who have also lost their moms. And I don't just mean in death, because there are so many ways you can lose a mother. And we're going to get into it. So let's talk about our moms. Welcome back. Today's episode is going to take us to Brooklyn, New York, by way of Costa Rica. This was the first interview I ever did with someone that I did not know beforehand. Ah, I was nervous um, before I did this call, but I was also really excited. I logged onto the Zoom call and I was wearing really big hoop earrings because I'm obsessed with hoops. I've been wearing them since I was 13. And I looked across the monitor and the woman staring back at me was also wearing big hoops. And we started laughing and she said she was a hoop aficionado. We bonded over that first moment when we both decided to upgrade from small size hoop to medium size hoop and then extra large hoop. You know, the hoop where you can like stick your entire fist through. Those are the hoops I like. I was introduced to this guest by way of Meredith Montgomery, who's the brilliant graphic designer for this podcast. Meredith said, you have to know this woman. She's a writer. She's a teaching artist. She's in grad school. And she's writing a book right now about her mom, who passed in 2019. I just wanted to be honest and say that we do touch briefly in this interview on cancer and chemo. So if that's something that you're dealing with right now in your life, or if that's touching someone you love... We do talk about that briefly in this interview, but we mainly talk about her perfect mom, her perfect mom who got to be a capital D dancer in New York City, who lived the life of a working artist for many years and eventually got to teach dance at a college in New York City. We talk about how hard it is to watch someone who's active and healthy get sick, just out of the blue, and how bummed my guest was that her mom never got to see Black is King. This is Leah Hart. So I'm from Brooklyn, New York. I was born and raised. My mom, she came to Brooklyn with her family at 12 years old from Costa Rica. So an immigrant woman, um, she became a naturalized citizen just a few years after that. And But Brooklyn was home. Brooklyn was always home to her and, and her favorite place to be. And she became a dancer. She went to different um, schools and and really developed herself as a performer and a dancer and an artist. And in the 80s, I popped up late 80s uh, (laughs) and sort of didn't end her career as a dancer. She continued teaching classes. She continued taking classes. And and what kind of dance? She did African and Caribbean And she danced with the Charles Moore Dance Company from the 70s until the mid to late 80s. And the last major performance that she did do, she was eight months pregnant with me. So we've performed together in some way and danced together in that way. And I want pictures of that. I need to see that. (laughs) If you have photos of your mom at that time dancing. Definitely (laughs) find that. Um, And it was funny because... She started off with her back facing the the audience and and then she turned around and it was this big reveal that she was this eight month pregnant, you know, like beautiful, beautiful woman. And so she kept that love. She kept that love of the arts and she definitely fostered that 
in me. Uh, I didn't become a dancer like her, but we still had this major bond as artists. Mm-hmm. We went to museums together all the time. We loved to read. And because of her love for reading, you know, that really came alive in me. And then I became the avid reader and would mainly share books with her. And so she loved that in me and loved that I I had a passion for that. I had a passion for, for writing. And that developed much later in my life. Um, I mm-hmm. wasn't the kind of kid that that did write um, or or had a lot of journals or, or diaries or anything like that. It it was definitely something that that came up. I would say in high school, I developed this love for just telling stories and and wanting the ability to to tell and share stories and thought that maybe it was visual, and so I explored that for a little while, but then decided in college when I did go to college and I was a late bloomer. And that was something that she and I definitely connected on was, was being late bloomers and and figuring out our, our calling or our passion Mm -hmm. later on in life. But when I went into college at 23, where'd you go? I went to Marymount Manhattan college here in the city. So I never left. I've never left (laughs) New York or Brooklyn and, and neither once she came to the country, neither did she, she sort of just stayed. She always lived in Brooklyn. Always lived in Brooklyn. We did have a time in Queens for 10 years, but Brooklyn was still always home and family was here and all of our friends. And, you know, once I got into college, I decided I wanted to be an English major because it was just something that was just vibing with me, the idea mm-hmm. of, of learning through reading and, and teaching through, through reading and sharing in that way. And, and something that we sort of always shared and knew was that no matter what room you walked into, you would find somebody that has read something that you have and you can connect with them in that way. And, and I just wanted that opportunity to connect with people. And so really hunkered down, got the degree, finished the degree. And around graduation, she was experiencing some some bleeding and mm-hmm. postmenopausal. So that wasn't something that should be happening. And mm-hmm. she went in for a hysterectomy right after my graduation and then started her first round of chemo. First round of chemo and radiation. Uh, she lost all of her hair. She wore a wig and she wore a head wrap and she was just like stunningly beautiful still, even through all of that. And people would comment on it all the time. Like they mm-hmm. couldn't believe that that she was sick because she looked beautiful, you know, mm-hmm. as if you can't look beautiful while being sick, you know? <laughs> That's right. That's right. And losing your hair and yes, what, yeah, is, what is beauty takes even away mean? from that. Yeah. yeah. Right, right. How um, old was she? She was at that point, she was 66. Okay. Was oh. she still dancing she in her was. later years? She oh, was. Wow. Up until, so she continued through doing chemo. She was teaching yoga. She was also taking mm. a dance class every week with the group of women that some were dancers in their past life, as they would say, and some just found it in Mm -hmm. their, you know, more mature years. And they're called Mo Jazz and they're still dancing and and doing 
classes on Zoom here in Brooklyn. And, yes. uh, it's incredible. And so she continued doing that. Um, and then even up until she went into remission for a short time, she was in remission for about three months. And then after one of the performances she had performed with Mojazz, she developed a cough. And she thought that the cough had to do with just being in a basement, a dusty basement, but mm-hmm. it had come back. The mm-hmm. cancer had come back and it had spread to her lungs. She did a clinical trial, a uh, immunotherapy trial, mm-hmm. and that didn't work. It just, nothing happened. No improvements were shown. So then went back to do chemo and did chemo until the end of 2018. She, you know, trooped it out throughout the holidays. She was here for Christmas. She was here for New Year's Eve. And on January 1st, 2019, uh, at 3 a.m., she passed away. On January 1? Yeah. Yeah. So that was the start of that year. And so it was even difficult understanding how she got sick. Um, yeah, because she was never sick. I, I never knew her to even have a cold. And, and this was a woman who was dancing until she, you know, yeah. couldn't dance anymore. So that would cause me such resentment. Not that anyone deserves to die, but someone smokes or mm-hmm. I mean, I smoked for 20 years or you're not healthy, you're not moving, you're not active. There's just you know, sometimes you got to take care of yourself. But when you've done everything, you said, you know, to be physical, yoga, moving, there's vegans out in the world that are doing it right, you Mm -hmm. go, great. And they still get sick. And that unfairness that people who have never smoked a day in their life get lung cancer and smokers Mm -hmm. might never get it. So how do you deal with that? I don't know if you have resentment from that or feeling like it's unfair. I still in many ways feel that it is unfair that yeah. I see so many people, not even people being unhealthy. I don't, you know, people yeah. being unhealthy yeah. is one thing, but people who are just mean. And, well, that's one thing. Sure, know? that's a whole other conversation. Karma it's, is a different, yeah, that's a different exactly. conversation. It's she's a good person so and she's moving. Yeah, yeah you know, she was she was lovely. Everyone loved yeah. her and, and she loved life. And that was the other thing is that she loved life so much. She was good at it. Mm -hmm. (laughs) She was good at living it because she had great friends. She was a good mom. And I, you know, losing her at 29 does put into perspective that, you know, a lot of people don't like their moms. And I had a good mom. Yeah. Um, I had one that I really liked and got along with and and we had things in common. Did it put it in perspective because you feel like you now know a lot of people don't like their mom or did you never really see that until you lost the mom that was always so great and that you got along with? I always knew that she was good. I sort of never understood why people mm. didn't get along with their moms just because it came so natural to us. And I th- yeah. assumed that it came natural to people. And then as you get older, you do realize that connections need mm-hmm. to be worked through. People hold on to to trauma Grudges. in very different ways. Right. And, right. and so then they express their trauma in different ways. And very often it does come down to their child and their expression mm-hmm. of that. And, you know, luckily... We didn't have that. 
And I still don't have that. And she wasn't perfect because no person is perfect, but she was a perfect mom. She was a perfect Mm. mom for me. Uh, She was exactly what I needed. And it could be very different for someone else, but she was a perfect mom to me. Do you remember those final moments with her? Yes. She went to the hospital a few days after Christmas. I was in Houston with my partner and his family for the holiday. And I flew back the day after Christmas because things just weren't looking great. She was Mm. still at home. She was still going to chemo treatment. Um, She was still active as much as she could be and talking. But it it was getting difficult. Um, and, and she was getting tired. And that was mm-hmm. really what we knew that there was something wrong is that she she was tired and she never was tired. So she went into the hospital. I went to go see her as soon as I got home to New York. And she was ready to leave the hospital. She was like, find me my sneakers, call the Uber. I'm ready to go. <laughs> like, I, do not, I do not want to be here. And I'm like, well, they need to sort of keep you here for a little while just to like monitor how things are going. And then we'll go on from there. And she was okay with that. We watched Finding Nemo, which is something that Mm. we always did. Um, I had slipped off her rings because her hands had just gotten so small at that point. And she kind of looked at me like, what are you doing? Like, why are you taking my property? Yeah, like, <laughs> you're, you're stealing. You're, you're just, you just, yeah. you're out of here. You're yeah. out. And I'm like, no, I'm going to, you know, put it in a safe place. Like, I don't want anything to happen while you're in here. And again, like she was still totally comprehending that. And mm-hmm. I left. You know, we did our exchange like we always did. I told her that I loved her. She told me that she loved me more. I left. Mm. Um, And then the next day, they had her sedated. And she was in that state for just a few days. Um, Her siblings were able to come. She's one of six. There were five. There are now four. But with her living, Mm. there were five. Mm -hmm. So her four siblings did They were all there. And, you know, my uncle in Texas, my uncle in New Jersey, and then my two aunts here in New York, and they were able to be with her. Um, And I had asked the doctor, you know, when she was in that state, what is it like? And, you know, what what is it Mm -hmm. going to be like? these next few days. And, and when I think about it and, and when I write about it, because these are the moments that I'm, I'm trying to, to get down, I think it's so silly that I asked this woman who's alive, like, what does, <laughs> what's this woman who is about to transition experiencing? And, but I needed to know. And, and I'm the type of per- I need. That's why I read. And if you didn't ask, you would regret it. Oh, absolutely. Forever. Like Forever. I didn't say it. And obviously, if she can't process or answer, then that's there fine. we have it. But you mm-hmm. have to ask. You have to try. Yeah. That's incredible to know in that moment. I don't know if I would have had the power to do that or that takes bravery. Yeah. But I, I needed to. I yeah. just I, and it would have it would have haunted me. I would have mm-hmm. been doing all of the research, trying to figure it out. And and she told me that it's like being in the space between being asleep and awake. And she says it's it's like a twilight state. And mm. so I understood that. And I was able to to comprehend it and also mm-hmm. kind of 
getting to a place where maybe I could meet her there. What does that mean? How do you do that? Like, maybe if I get into that space between being asleep and awake. Yeah. You still feel it. And it's still something that you think about and that you do try to get to. Um, Mm. And you try to get to the other side of what all of this means. And it's, you know, a year and a half and you're still not there. Hmm. Even though I understand what it mm-hmm. means and where that is yeah. until you go through it, I guess. Mm-hmm. I wanted to know what it was like to know that she was okay. And I knew through all of it, she wasn't afraid. She never was afraid. She was Did never, she say that? She always she said it. it. She wasn't afraid of the chemo. She wasn't afraid mm. to die. She wasn't afraid of anything. The only thing that she was afraid was to leave us. And I think that she's okay with how things happened and how things worked out. And she knew that we would be okay. Mm. Is she spiritual? Or yes. Religious? Yeah, she was spiritual. Yes. She grew up Catholic. She was raised Catholic and I was also, she also raised us Catholic, Mm -hmm. but in her later years, she just became more so spiritual and more connected with traditional religious practices, you know, Caribbean, African Mm. religious practices, which are rooted in Christianity or they are rooted in them. (laughs) Christianity is rooted in that, (laughs) however. Uh, it's it's to be viewed, but she, that's where she believed and that's where she existed in, in her belief system. And when we had her memorial service, it wasn't at a Catholic church. It was at a Presbyterian church, which was where she had taught yoga and she had taught dance for almost 30 years. Oh. And so she just felt connected awesome. to that yeah. place. Um, yeah, that's her family yeah. or her, that's her church, literally and figuratively. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. What you were describing also sounds a little like yoga nidra. Sometimes you, when you get to that state yes. during yoga nidra, it's that in between, I can't, I can't speak to it because I'm not a yoga instructor, but I've done yoga nidra and I always feel that, that middle ground place mm-hmm. of being awake and being asleep, but being conscious, but you've slowed the body. It has, you've calmed the heart rate blood pressure you yeah and sort of like transcended yeah Yeah, transcended but you're right but you're still aware yeah right so when you asked her that and she said that did you write it down right then or you just heard it and was like I'll remember it were you recording her how were you collecting those last moments it's all through memory and so a lot of my writing does go into memory and and how things are remembered when you are in a state of grief, which is different from how things can be remembered in, in yes. other spaces, yes. um, as well as the shared memory that she and I had. And so it really is just looking mm-hmm. into the conversations that we had and how they connect to this time that she's no longer here, that I'm sort of mapping out what life looks like. And... And just how to live it. So much of my lived experience involves her. And and so 
how do I navigate that without her? Or how do I navigate that with the tools that she gave me without having that instructor still there leading you in practice, you know? Yeah. What are some of those tools that she gave you? Just in how to be a good individual. So how to be a good friend, how to be a decent partner, how to find your passion and really lean into that and and live that and not let it consume you. Have other things going on for you, but still have that one thing that you always return to that makes you feel completely free. And she had that in dance. And dance wasn't Mm. the only thing that she did. She did yoga. She loved music. And so she went to a lot of music performances and and talked about a lot of musical things. She was also a baby academic. She enjoyed academia and the establishment of that. And we definitely shared that. You know, I I work in higher ed. and, And I think that a lot of my motivation going into higher ed was from her experience working at Old Westbury here in New York. She was a dance professor and that was her first real job. She developed the dance department there and it was a really big deal at the time. And she was a brand new graduate. Mm. She was fairly new to the dance world within itself. You know, she didn't she didn't start dancing as a child. It was something that she picked up in in high school and then just ran with. And so she was new within mm-hmm. the dance world and and established that and that was a really really big deal. And then to run a department, that's Exactly. Yeah, that's incredible. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and and just not only being a new graduate but being a black woman at that time. That that was that was something special. And so she in the seventies or when yes, when would that 70s. have been? Seventies. Okay. Yeah, in the seventies. Yeah, you came around the eighties. Hmm. Wow. Um, yeah, my mom was a teacher, so I always question, should I be a teacher? Is that in my blood? Have I been avoiding it? Did she ever tell you to not be a teacher or did she sort of like leave it open? She left it really open, but she loved academia. My mom loved teaching and science and biology and all that. But I always go, She never warned me about it, but she never really said be good at this you know she she didn't really should definitely something something to think about yeah I think yeah because I like high school kids I also liked I liked my high school Mm -hmm. years I'm a weird person who enjoyed some some of it and I go I like that Mm -hmm. age uh for me I know kids are different now and I know that that, they are it's a different world I know that but still I work with high school kids I work as an admissions counselor and so the the students that I primarily interacted with in Mm -hmm. that role were high school kids on their way to college. And they are the best. I love Gen Z. I'm one of the (laughs) the millennials that love Gen Z. I think that they are so brilliant. I think that they are going Mm -hmm. to change the world. And that's true. Yeah. And they they just energize me when I'm around them. They see the world Hmm. so different. And and I think that that was what my mom loved about academia was just it's energizing. You feel it. Because you're you're ready to, yes. to change the world. You are learning ways to change the world, mm-hmm. and you're inspiring them. They're inspiring you. Yeah. And then my mom, I, she really felt it was her purpose, and she always treated her students like she treated adults mm-hmm. with respect. And exactly. you know, you can talk to me with respect and share. Yeah. And anyway, are you a counselor now? I am. I'm a counselor now. I primarily work with grad students now. 
Um, so that's that's different, but still the same. It still is that same sort of excitement. Um, yeah. I wanted to go back and talk about what you said about your mom being a black woman dancer at that time. Like, did she talk to you about that career or obstacles she faced trying to get work or start that department? Did she speak openly about that as an artist and a black woman? She spoke about being very lucky and she did get very lucky in her career because she did start very late. It was in high school that she started and then went to college in New York. She went to Hunter College and wasn't really sure what she was going to major in. And then she Mm -hmm. decided if I'm going to major in anything, it's going to be something that I enjoy. And dance was what she enjoyed. And she knew that she wanted to teach it. So she took education classes as well. And when the time came for her to sort of choose where she was going to go career-wise, Charles Moore had approached her at school. He came to teach a class at Hunter. Is he a big dancer? He was a big dancer and he had a company. So he taught Caribbean, African-Caribbean dance, modern dance. And then Ailey was the ballet Mm. dancer. And so during that Mm -hmm. time, it was sort of, if you were a black dancer, depending on what your focus was, you would go to either or, you would take classes with either or. And it just so happened that my mom was dancing. Mm -hmm. Charles was there. He saw her and he asked her if anyone had spoken to her about joining a company. And she said, no. And he was like, do you want to? And she said, yes. And she... That, that gave her an opportunity to tour the world. So when she talks about that time, she talks about how lucky she was. Our joke was like to be a dancer. It's like dancer with a capital D. She got to be a dancer with a capital D, mm. whereas some people became mascots, mm. you know, and mm-hmm. that was mm-hmm. their experience of being a dancer was was being like, you know, a, a minor league mascot, rather, mm-hmm, you know, rather mm-hmm. than being in a company. And so the craft to do the art, yes, literally yeah. got to do the craft and to meet people and to yeah. meet so many different choreographers. And at that time, you know, a lot of dance companies were were emerging and she mm-hmm. studied with them. That was a really, really big deal for her and, and something that she was very proud of. And, and again, something that she returned to. It was, it was natural for her. Even before she was yeah. officially dancing, she still was dancing. Did she ever get to dance in Costa Rica or any part of the tour? <laughs> yeah. No part of the tour brought her to Costa Rica, but she went to Puerto Rico a number of times to the Bahamas. Mm. And those were her like two favorite places. She also went to Haiti and that was a big deal. And she did get a lot of art from Haiti when she went and just the different stories of these places and the summers that she had and and being a professor, Mm -hmm. it did allow her to tour for weeks on end without Mm -hmm. having to worry. And so she wanted that balance and she made sure that her whole life revolved around that and, and balanced her Mm -hmm. out because that was the life that she wanted. That's incredible. And to make yeah. a living doing it. Yes. I mean, yeah, that's the dream. Yeah. 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 
<laughs> to just, yeah, to be able to do that at that age, at that time, I, I think that she was just living life. And so it didn't occur to her how difficult it was for other people mm-hmm. or, or just how radical it was to, to exist in her body mm-hmm. and, and mm-hmm. to have that much success. I think she was just sort of doing it mm-hmm. and, and happy to be there and to do it. And because she was in a company that that embraced her because everyone looked like her and, and to really be uplifted and to, to learn about her culture in ways that not being tokenized, exactly. not being, you know, taking her narrative or exactly. using her as a image on a poster. Mm-hmm. Right. It's part of the actual company itself. Yeah. yeah. So to be able to to do that, she learned more about who she was and she, she learned more about her history and she carried that mm-hmm. into being a parent. You know, she always exposed my sister and I to our history and, and to this very rich past that belonged to my grandmother, but then just belonged to the diaspora as a whole. And mm. so, you know, a lot of people are coming to these realizations now and they've, been things that I've been living my whole life. And I'm lucky to to have these tools and these resources to share mm-hmm. and, and that I that I do know about it, but I know about it because of her, you know? Mm. Yeah. Did you know your grandmother? I did. How did your mom talk about her mother? It's something I'm oh always curious about. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they were very different. <laughs> my grandmother was, she was a strong lady and like strong in a sense that she had six kids before she was 30 and then decided that she did not want to live in Costa Rica. She wanted a better life for herself. She wanted a better life for her kids. She a single mom? No, my grandfather was okay. <laughs> very much. <laughs> you were just like, she decided she was out. Yes. She had the kids. Well, clearly it sounds like she was like, we're leaving to the grandfather. We're leaving. <laughs> to her husband. Yes, yeah. to him. Yes. She said, we are leaving. I will go first. Hmm. And she came to New York first. Her mother, my great grandmother, sponsored her to come to New York. And three months later, she was able to get my grandfather to come. And then three months after that, she sent for the first three of her children. She picked which ones would come depending on who needed to be with who. So her second oldest son, her oldest daughter, and her youngest daughter, they came first Hmm. because the oldest daughter would look out for the youngest. That was her thinking. And then the oldest son would look out for the two middle daughters. And so three months after the first three kids came, the other three kids came. And that's how she did it. And she brought her entire family to New York within, you know, within a year, year and a half. Uh, and and settled in Brooklyn and and stayed in Brooklyn and they my grandparents bought a house in Queens in Laurelton Queens but my mm. grandmother was a strong lady she was determined she didn't take shit from anybody and again like <laughs> yeah <laughs> probably somebody was watching over her someone was protecting her because the things that she did and said were not safe for mm. women that looked like her and I'm Shocked that she didn't know that, <laughs> you know, like living in the time that she did. She just didn't care. 
I guess. But she was the kind of person that if she didn't like a job, she was going to leave the job. And whether she had another job or not, she was leaving the job and then she'll yeah. find another job. You know? Did she have it? I mean, I assume she came here because she was sponsored and then she found work once she got here. She did. Or you wouldn't probably have it before. That would be very difficult depending on difficult, what you're doing. Right? But for a lot of people, if they were coming, they had to have a job waiting for them. Or the person that was sponsoring them needed to guarantee them exactly. I got you a gig in this warehouse. I've got you a job in this office. I've got you something at this restaurant or whatever it is, right? She did. But she did have that or didn't have that? My great-grandmother, she was a nanny. And she was working as a nanny to a family out in Long Island. And so when my grandmother came, I Mm. believe she did work. She did do domestic work initially, whether it was working as a nanny or cleaning. And then she said, I'm not doing that anymore. <laughs> and I'm done. And I'm done. <laughs> got a job in a, in a restaurant, in Stouffer's Kitchen, actually. And that's where she really learned how to, how to bake. And she was an incredible you know, pastry chef, an incredible baker. And she did that for a good amount of time and then said, I'm not doing that anymore. And left and became, she worked in a bank. Hmm. And this was a woman who had an eighth grade education. She she didn't she didn't go into high school, she didn't go to college. But the one thing that she said was, "I learned geography. <laughs> you know, I learned geography, and I know how to read and write. And that is wow. all the education that I need." And hmm. she flexed that geography education because she traveled, and she very much instilled that in her daughters and then you know my my mom and my aunts they encouraged us my sister cousins and I to explore the world and to travel as much as we can and to just see see life outside of New York outside of yourself Mm -hmm. and then seeing life outside of yourself sort of brings you back to who you are if more people in this country traveled don't you think if more Americans traveled Oh, outside of this country? They would learn <laughs> they, that they're not the center. That's right. We're not the center <laughs> of the whole world. The center of the world. And you I know, know it. Yeah, it can cost money. Other and, things to eat. Yeah, and I know that it's not cheap. But there's ways to make it work. There's ways to travel. Or even just, you don't have to go to Australia. or I mean, no. there's, you don't have to go that no. far. You just have to leave <laughs> within our borders. I just think there's so much to learn. Anyway, that brings you back to yourself. That's such a beautiful way of putting it. I always yeah. feel that way. Yeah, it's so important. And so she was just a determined woman and, and you know, a strong woman. And mm-hmm. she had the life that she wanted and, and people loved her, even though she could be difficult. And, you know, people... But they liked that she said what she meant. Yes. And that she's kind of just... No bullshit? Yeah. Was that it too? That yeah. she just This is who I am and you're gonna love me. And it's not even like you can take it or leave it. No, you are going to love <laughs> me. You're gonna love everything about this. And because she was also generous mm. and she was a great cook and she was funny um and really <laughs> stunningly beautiful and like wore great outfits and people liked that. And yeah. they, they were attracted to her to her light and I say it's different from my mom because my mom, she radiated from the inside. You know, Mm. people were attracted in a different way. She wasn't a very loud person. She was very petite. 
<laughs> and even a bit soft-spoken, but she was funny. And she talked a lot. Once she started talking, she would talk a lot. And she knew a lot. Mm. So that, that made it easy for people to talk to her. And she was just nice. Did your grandmother support her career as a dancer before your mom gained some sort of success? You know, it's easy to say, I was always for it, right? When someone's on TV or successful. My mom wouldn't have become a dancer if it wasn't for my grandmother. Okay. You know, she was performing in high school and she saw her on the stage and she was just like, you're the best one up there. (laughs) And again, this is a person that was like not the easiest to impress. (laughs) (laughs) She, she, you know, she had her, she had very strong opinions of things. And so the fact that she told my mom that she was the best, she wasn't lying. She was, she was the best. And if it wasn't for that, she wouldn't have become a dancer and she wouldn't have gone as far. She wouldn't have known that that was what it was. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And maybe there's something to be said about getting validation from your mom and and what Mm. she tells you that you're good at and running with it. Yes. Or is it just that she sees something in you that you haven't yet seen? I don't, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know what that is. (laughs) And there's also a coddling, right? You have to be careful of parents telling you, you can do anything. You can take on the world. You you should be given that power. And I think you should be given that praise. But when they really mean it, and when you really watch, I watched my parents really invest in like, you've got something that's special. Mm -hmm. And you've got to know that, that it can't be taught, right? There's something that you got. And if it's a thing. Exactly. And and even if it isn't acting, even if it doesn't become a successful actor you have an ability to empathize and make people laugh and connect that's exactly hone that yeah hone that and then yeah. try to get and then they're like and then try to get a corporate job if it doesn't work out in the acting world you know they're like can you maybe go yeah maybe not but they really believed in me and supported me and when mm-hmm. i was succeeding were really happy at a young age but i i always question you know you have to be careful of coddling because i think my parents gave me so much confidence that i was like look out and then the hard world comes down and reminds you. Yeah. It's just a tricky, it's a tricky <laughs> I hear that from a lot of like <laughs> actors and, and yeah. people that have been talented within that their right. whole their life. Little and, and think, of, their little circle or their little bubble of yeah, Skidmore or high school. And then you get out exactly. there. But actors are told no their whole lives, even successful ones, right? So the exactly. ratio of and think that it's just the the culture of being an actor, of of needing so. to fail so many times before you can really succeed. And mm-hmm. then that one success is like, then you're, you're Al Bundy. You right, know? right. You're talking about <laughs> that one success. That one break, for, yeah. Yeah, for a yeah. while. And it's just, I wish that the culture of it mm-hmm. just changed and that mm-hmm. opportunities actually opened up because it's true. Yeah. That, that is your calling. That is what you are really good at doing. And, and maybe it is a matter of, breaking it down. And and we are living in this incredible age where we can do so much Mm -hmm. with our talents and break out in other ways. Is your partner Uh, an actor? I mean, he does voiceover. He does voiceover and he does all of it. He he does all of it. You know, but there, there, for all of the wins, there are, you know, a lot of disappointments that came before. Yeah. Um, yeah. And he was he was a child actor and like mm. the cutest 
at it and was really, really great and has found so many different ways to do it. And, you know, just amongst that year of 2019, you know, his mom had also passed away nine months Mm. after my mom. And and she was his manager, you know, like she was his you know, life force to that. So again, trying to figure out who you are outside of their, not even their approval, just their encouragement. Mm -hmm. How do you continue doing this thing that you really love if the one person Mm -hmm. that has always been there to see it, Mm -hmm. has always been there to support it, isn't there anymore? How do you continue doing that? And is it is it this thing that I love or is this thing that I did to prove to my family I could do it or make them happy? I don't think that's true for me. But the one person who kept all my programs, my grandma. So my mom's mom is still living. She's 93 amazing. and is one of my best oh. friends. But she's, you know, in a nursing home. Yeah. That's yeah. And she's buried both of her children. And but my grandma would keep all of my programs. So did my mom. You know, everything I did, posters and would remind me of performances I did 20 years ago. Right. So I have friends like that who love my work and are like, I loved that show in 2001, but they're not your family. You know, it's different. Exactly. It's different. It's it's hard. My dad's still here and very supportive, of course. But, Mm. you know, it's just it is hard to lose one half of the first team you ever had. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And when my grandma goes, yeah, she... She watched me on TV. You know, she always says, what time will it be on or what? I mean, it's not like I've been on TV that many times. But when it happens, you go, here's the big moment. Grandma gets to watch it from her house. You know, she gets to watch it. She wants to see it. She doesn't know how to DVR. She needs to see it in real time. Exactly. (laughs) And I wonder, yeah, when she goes, right, that that, I lose another cheerleader, right? But do you feel in this world, because I want to talk about personal grief during Mm -hmm. COVID. And so if not having parents to reach out to or get some guidance on this mm-hmm. time of uncertainty. I don't know if that's coming up for you or the loss of your, just your mom itself feeling unsettled. I think that we view this time as grief, but we mm-hmm. actually are still living the trauma right now. And it isn't until it's over. Mm-hmm. And then that's like six months after it's over, will we begin to process this grief and what's happening? We're, we're in the sickness. So like when you find out that a loved one is sick, this is what we are experiencing. We're- right. Even if we're grieving what we've lost, we're in the trauma of losing it. We're not done yet. No. The other life is still here, mm. but it's, it's slipping away and we're watching it slip away and we're watching it evolve into something else. And so... You know, sorry to everyone (laughs) to be like the bearer of bad news, but no, it was beautiful. I was already, I was already jumping ahead to grief, and you're like, no, honey, we haven't started yet. (laughs) We haven't started yet. You know, we're we're in, we're we're in the 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 sickness. We're in the illness right now, Um, and figuring out what that is going to look like when it's all over. And and that's something that we can't do. And that's where a lot of the frustration is, yes. is not being able to, to when really When will it know. be done? Yeah, when yeah. will it be done? We can keep yeah. saying winter 2021. And then they say 
We don't know. We don't know. There's no telling. But your mom couldn't be going to dance shows. She couldn't be going to concerts. She could write. I mean, this this whole life that she knows as an artist. And that would have been terrible. It Mm -hmm. would have gutted her. And even if she was in perfect health, Mm. it would have been difficult. But if she had held on, if the chemo had, you know, if whatever the, the outcome would have been would not have been a good outcome. So to say that I'm sort of happy that she's not seeing this is true. I am happy that she's not experiencing what's happening in the country, mm-hmm. what's happening, you know, economically, what is happening with the mm-hmm. virus, um, the danger of the virus, and especially people within that age bracket, that would have mm-hmm. really been tough for her to experience. But, you know, on the other side of that, it's like, damn, like... I wanted you to see Black is King, you know, like I wanted you to, like I wanted you to see, you know, like the VP pick. I I wanted you to see these things or just at least get your opinion yes. on it. And yes. so it always does bring you back yes. to that. So even though I don't have to worry about older people. Mm. And so my concern isn't there all the time. And so therefore my anxiety isn't Mm -hmm. tied up in that. And while she was sick, it brought up a lot Mm. of external anxiety for her and like for her well-being that I couldn't have, I wouldn't have survived, (laughs) you know, let alone her. She probably would have been okay. It would have been the stress that I was feeling constantly for her safety that would have just taken me out. Um, Is there anything from your book you'd want to share with me today on the microphone? If not, you do not have to if you wanted to. Oh, man. I wish if I had prepared, (laughs) but I have something that I have been working on and looking at and editing and restructuring, uh, but in the spirit of, of just being in this space. (laughs) Yes, I love it. My mom had great legs, strong, shapely legs that held up a small body. She told me her legs came from her grandmother, the one who would balance a basket on her head, walking the streets of Costa Rica, selling patties to locals, taking a lunch break at the seawall. Her legs definitely weren't inherited from her mother who often fell due to the poor distribution of weight from her large breasts. No, her legs came from her grandmother and grew muscular from running up the hills in Le Her home, the one she lived in with her parents and five siblings, with the raised wraparound porch, was at the top of a hill. Despite she and my grandmother describing the house as humble, with its dirt paths and stray dogs, I always imagined it being a stately white house with a beautiful screened-in porch and tall mango trees surrounding the perimeter. No matter the picture they painted at the time, it seemed like a fairy tale. It's awesome. Thank you. <laughs> I want more. <laughs> Thank, Thank you for you. sharing that. So I asked my guest, tell me the name of your mother, what her name was, and how you're feeling about her today in this moment talking to me. What is coming up for you as you say her name and um, how you're feeling. Her name was Janice Patricia Hart Braithwaite. That was her whole name. Uh, She was born July 12th, 1951. 
And today I am feeling a lot of joy. I'm feeling joy that she gave me life, but she also gave me a story. That's awesome. Thank you for sharing it with me. Thank you. Thank you for having me. This was cathartic and beautiful. (laughs) I'm glad that you're doing this. (laughs) Oh, God, what a great pull quote. Thanks, Leah. (laughs) (laughs) All right, take care. Bye. Oh, don't you just want to hear more of her writing, right? Oh, it's so good. I cannot wait for Leah's book to come out. If you wanted to check out our website, it is mothersgravepod.com. You can go there and see behind the scenes images of this episode. You can see pictures of Leah's mom as a dancer and read about Leah's company, which is called Her Musing. They do writing and wellness workshops for woke women. Her Musing understands the power and communication that writing provides, and they give space for women-identifying individuals to create and share their stories. Check them out at hermusing.org. Also, if you wanted to honor Janice's memory, you should go out and support any arts organization that you love right now. If you've been thinking about supporting that local symphony or that local dance troupe or that small theater in your hometown, now is the time. The arts world and everyone involved could use your support now more than ever. Even if you know a stage manager or a wig designer in your life, send them an email, send them some love, and then maybe send them some cash because they could use it. Uh, We're going to need the arts more than ever when all of this is said and done, and they're going to come back bigger and better than ever. So let's keep supporting the arts and do it for Janice. I want to thank Leah for talking with me. I also want to thank Susie Pond, one of my oldest friends with Redbird Media Group, for editing and producing this podcast so beautifully. I also want to thank Alice Anderson for her wonderful work on sound mixing. The reason this podcast sounds so good is because of the two of them. So thank you so much. Notoria Marketing and Design for their website. Meredith Montgomery for her logo and individual episode designs. And Matt Chapman for his theme music. And special thanks to my therapist, Jill Wolf, Heather Bodie, Laura Nicole, Danny Bravman, Jonathan Bode, and all of my friends for their love and support. And I want to thank all of you for listening, subscribing, sharing, telling your friends. It's meant a lot to me. So please, thank you so much and keep spreading the good word. Just recently, I celebrated my 41st birthday. Woohoo! And I was thinking a lot about how my mom used to call me on my birthday at 12.28 a.m. at the actual time of my birth and leave me a message about how hard it was to conceive me, how difficult her labor was, how long it took for me to come out of her, and the fact that I was the greatest love of her life. Yeah, that's, um, that's a complicated message to get over and over again on your birthday, but I found it really charming and I looked forward to it every year. And then when our relationship became more estranged and complicated and she got sicker, I started finding those messages to be frustrating. I I didn't want her to call me at 12:28 a.m. I didn't want her to call me at 3 a.m., which she sometimes did to leave a follow-up voicemail message. I could hear the hydrocodone and her voice making her sound tired and slow and shaky and confused. I just wanted her to call me at a normal time, like 11 a.m. or 2.30 p.m. on my birthday and, and just talk to me. But now, you know, now I would kill to get one of those voicemail messages.
I'd even love to hear one right now. I, I didn't even save them. And trust me, if I had saved them, I would be totally sharing them with all of you, but I didn't. To the greatest love of my life, signed the first cheerleader I ever had, my mom. Talk to you soon. <laughs>